Ryan Las Vegas. Welcome to Heatwave Sports. I'm Tom Barton, TomBartonSports.com. Sitting in tonight with Chris Wynn. Going to take us through two hours of sports talk in Las Vegas. I got to tell you guys, look, we have a lot to get into, a lot to talk about. Uh, but we we sometimes push the local stuff till later in the show. We sometimes build up to the local. We we got to start with the local talk. Big win by UNLV last night. I want to get into that. I want to get into all the upsets that happened this weekend in college basketball. And the college basketball landscape as a whole, we've seen major teams go down, teams fall, play out of pace, uh, and, and it was led by, look, UNLV taking down a top 25 team. I want to get into that. I want to get into the Mountain West tournament, how it looks like it's going to be very wide open, what UNLV has to do to sort of really have a good showing there. I think it's anyone's game, even though we have some powerhouses. Uh, I, I think we look around the country and you see a lot of a lot of that, right? Even with the big conferences, the Power Five, going into the mid-majors, see a lot of conferences that I'm looking at this and I'm saying, no, it, it's not just a one or a two team kind of, well, you know what? Well, who's going to win the tournament? No, no, no. This could go deep. This could go very deep and we can get upsets like we did have this weekend. It was upset weekend in college basketball uh, including today, Creighton went down today. So we'll get into that for sure. I do want to touch on a little bit of NBA. I have a little NHL news to get into. And we are absolutely going to get into Major League Baseball. Cody Bellinger finally signs. Does this mean Jordan Montgomery is going to sign? Does this mean Blake Snell is going to sign? And I got to get Chris's opinion on the controversy, Chris, about how ugly these uniforms are. But we're going to save all that for later. I want to bring Chris on. I got to get to college basketball right away, right at the forefront. And we're starting with UNLV, the huge upset, which was a really, really well-played game by UNLV. It started upset weekend. And that's what we had this weekend. Lots of upsets, lots lots of surprises. Chris, how surprised were you that the Rebels were able to get it done. Not too surprised, Tommy, and it's always good to join you, my friend, on a Sunday here on Heatwave Sports. As you mentioned, we are getting into the nitty-gritty. That is conference play, Tommy Barton, when it comes to across the country as we ramp up to roll into the march and get March Madness going. You pointed it out. Saturday, uh, while UNLV did get the upset, it didn't really start it, right, because that game was an actual night game here on the West on the, on the West Coast. So you had uh, a few upsets, uh, especially from teams at the bottom half of the top 25 that went down on Saturday, including the likes of BYU and uh, and some others as well, too. But uh, of course, number eight, Duke also falling to Wake Forest uh, against the Demon Deacons on Saturday. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, it did uh, it did spur a lot of uh, upsets across the board when it came to uh, number 13, Alabama going down as well, too, and also number 23, Texas Tech, falling to the other Knights, the UCF Knights, in a matchup between two Big 12 teams there. But uh, no question about it. Uh, here in Vegas, obviously, you can imagine that uh, it's always interesting, and it always gets everybody fired up when UNLV starts to play like a team that can, that can play with the big boys. And Tom Barton, let me tell you something. This is a UNLV team, 
They can be Jekyll and Hyde, but they have knocked off three ranked teams during this 2023-24 season, including that win, of course, on Saturday night over Colorado State with that 66-60 win. You talked about it a little bit. Uh, this is a UNLV team, particularly from a defensive standpoint, that was outstanding in this basketball game, uh, particularly in the first half. Yeah, even though it was a two-point game at the end of the first half and they were actually trailing, uh, you could absolutely give kudos to what the Runner Rebels were able to do on that end of the floor. And then in the second half, UNLV offensively was able to get it rolling, Tommy. 42 points in the second half, led by DJ Thomas with his 23 points in this game, including 12-12 from the free throw line. And look, this is a Colorado State team that, let's face it, has, has faced struggles when it comes to Mountain West play on the road. They've had It's been a tough go, particularly in the last couple of weeks, Tommy, when it comes to the Rams trying to get W's when they go into venues in this conference. And that was no, uh, that was exactly the case on Saturday night here at the Thomas and Mac. It was good to get Luis Rodriguez going with 14 points in this game. And Keelan Boone also in double digits as well, too, for UNLV. Now, Isaiah Stevens, one of the better point guards in the Mountain West Conference, one of the better players in the Mountain West Conference, ended up with 18 points. And they did get 13 out of Joel Scott. And Clifford contributed with double digits as well, too. But this is a Colorado State team, Tommy. They've lost three of four and dropped to three and seven on the road. Uh, both these teams were tied at 49 when UNLV, who was a short favorite in this game, you know, as you're well aware, right? One and one and a one half point favorite, uh, according to multiple books across the board. There was even some pickums out there as well, too. Um, but a lot, I mean, sportsbook directors and supervisors that I heard on local radio here, Tommy, everybody was leaning towards UNLV in this basketball game, despite the fact that the line was short and that both these teams were projected to be, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, a toss-up and a coin flip. But uh, it became a free-throw shooting contest not long after that, and you saw Rodriguez make six free throws in a row down the stretch, and then Thomas made all four of his attempts to hold off that Colorado State rally, and they close out the game and get the W. You know, Chris, it, you mentioned something about the first half, and that, that's what I wanted to ask you about real quick. Yeah. Because – yeah, they only scored 24 points UNLV, but they held Colorado State to just 26. Colorado State, it, it might not be this offensive juggernaut, but I can't remember, just a, a quick memory mindset from myself, I can't remember the last time UNLV won a key game on the back of a defensive effort. Now, I know they put up 42 in the second half, but they held Colorado to 60 total points. When was the last time you've seen UNLV step up defensively like this? Look, they can win offensive games here and there, um, but defensively, to me, this is a different mindset, a different kind of UNLV team that they're putting together here. And, Tommy, you got to love what UNLV was able to do, particularly from a perimeter defense standpoint. This is Colorado State Rams team that uh, when you're talking about the guards and Stevens and Strong, these guys usually – can knock down a, a solid percentage of threes. The, the Rams just flat out struggled from three in this basketball game. They shot, I think, six, six to 24, uh, you know, basically right on 25% for the game. So that, to me, was a monster key as to why UNLV was able to win this basketball game, as you pointed out. Yeah, down two in the first half, but that perimeter defense, not just in the first half, but in the second half, was absolutely key to why the runner Rebels were able to get this W on Saturday night. So you're looking at this team, look, 
there's a lot of people that are going to say Colorado State, like you said, um, their road struggles are a problem. Their road struggles concerning, in especially in conference, are a problem. Uh, maybe they were overranked. Okay, I get it. But the Mountain West as a whole this year, it's a good team. Colorado State's still a 20-win team, right? So I'm taking nothing away from UNLV. But looking at the big picture here, dive into, for me, what is UNLV's mindset? Is UNLV in a position where they can build on this for the rest of the year? Was this kind of a one-off to show them, hey, this is what you can do at home? Do they still have to just go out there and win the tournament? What is the mindset moving forward after a huge win like this? Because we've watched in the past UNLV play close, even this year, play close or get wins, get big wins, and then sort of kind of flounder around. But I get the feeling this is a different UNLV team. I'm looking at this as a different UNLV team. Do you see the same thing that I do? I do in a sense because, look, this is absolutely something that could jumpstart UNLV as they go down the stretch here to the rest of the season. But uh, the reality is this. They're, they're sitting right now pretty much in the, you know, smack dab in the middle of the conference, you know, with all these teams jumbled up at 9-5, and 9-6, and 8-7, and seven, and, uh, and even Wyoming sitting at 6-8. and eight. And UNLV record is not exactly stellar when it comes to the overall record, so – Look, I, uh, I don't know because I'm not looking at the numbers right now, so I don't know exactly what their national ranking is from a perspective of uh, the consensus. But uh, there's no question that, you know, look, this is a team, if they're able to go on a run here, they could be a threat to win the Mountain West Conference tournament and they could get into the big dance. Now, look, I myself and a lot of us here locally, Tommy, that have talked about this team on the air, you know, till the cows come home, have pretty much after the the tough you know loss obviously at home to your rival in Nevada where you had that game in hand and just kind of the feel of the team and just the uh, you know just as as far as the post game press conference and talking to Coach Kruger and just getting kind of just a sense of the team we really thought that was kind of a nail in the coffin to their season Tommy when it came to postseason prospects but obviously now you know they look they've won two in a row against, you know, quality opponents. Uh, well, you know, pardon me on that. I mean, they play Air Force at Air Force. But the point being is that they've been able to kind of right the ship in a way. And, you know, sitting at 9-5 and five in the conference tied with Nevada and uh, essentially a half a game ahead of New Mexico, which I think New Mexico is a better basketball team than UNLV. And they actually beat New Mexico in the pit when New Mexico was ranked. That was one of the, rank, the ranked uh, teams that they beat this season to go along with Creighton as well, too. I don't think there's any doubt that there, I think there's a little more light at the end of the tunnel, I guess, is the way I'll put it, Tommy, when it comes to the runner Rebels and their postseason prospects. Now, look, I've, I'm still staunch on my opinion, and I'm sure Tim has very much uh, 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 the same opinion as well as our guy, you know, uh, Brian Feldman and some others around town that, look, Kevin Kruger, to save his job, he's going to have to get into the postseason somehow, and he's going to have to win a game. Um, Obviously, if they make a run in the Mountain West tournament, that means what? That means they could get to the big dance or they could put themselves in a position from a record standpoint and from uh, a reputation standpoint because of the Mountain West, because of what they were able to do in the tournament last year and the number of teams they had in last year. And it, 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 it does mirror a lot, a lot of ways here in 2023-24. 
what went down last year as far as the national perception and maybe the you know the number of teams that get into the big dance, they have a shot. But Tommy, they got to continue this run. They got to keep it going, my friend. You know, I look at this UNLV team. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, you know, I looked at UNLV and I said, "This is the kind of team that you, you want to get the big wins, but the back end of their schedule is very winnable." And we talked about that New Mexico game. You know, they had won a, a couple of games, three games in a row. They won going into New Mexico. And I said, "If you get that win at New Mexico, everything looks different." Because it opens up, they have a chance against Fresno State, a chance against Nevada, a, a chance against Air Force, got a chance at home against Colorado State, and they've rattled off these wins. Looking at this, you're going, man, you know, sometimes it's just the hot team. You won six of the last seven games. Wyoming, San Jose State, San Diego State, Nevada uh, coming up next. Wyoming, winnable game. San Jose State, certainly a winnable game at home. San Diego State now becomes a winnable game, and Nevada on the road in a revenge spot now becomes a winnable game. Four games left to get to 20, and then you have the conference tournament. I I think it's pretty obvious to everybody, Mountain West is a strong conference this year, but they're not getting two teams in, uh, three teams in, four teams in, that, that don't have more than 20 wins. It's the most UNLV could get. I don't think that this is about accumulating wins here. Would it be nice if they go 4-0? Sure. To me, it's about the growth. And that growth is really something impressive. You start to look at how they began the season, and this is why I brought up the defense. Southern putting up 85 against them, right? Florida State putting up 83. Richmond putting up 82. LMU putting up 78. Uh, you, You start to look at, wait a minute. Uh, even, you know, Utah State putting up 87. Now Air Force putting up 90 was the low point of the season. Now they concentrated on defense. 65, 69, 48, 65, 69, 43, 60. One team, one team since that Air Force debacle has scored more than 70 points on them. And one team they still won that game against. This is start to find out your identity. I have been screaming for years about UNLV and saying it's so much running rebels, running rebels, running rebels, but they're not that identity. It's kind of hoping that they were going to be that running gun team. I'm looking at this as a defensive team. I'm looking at this as a team that maybe Las Vegas isn't used to, but their defense carries the day. They run up 103 points in two straight in two games combined. Their defense carrying the day, Chris. Is this something that Las Vegas fans can accept? That defense is going to win for them? Absolutely. And that's kind of their their MO. And that is going to be a key. Look, you ran down the rest of the schedule, four games left in the Mountain West, right? Um, look, I, I, I'm re- it's really tough when it comes to predicting you know, and playing the schedule game. I mean, they could absolutely be a team that goes two and two down the stretch. They could go one and three. They could go four and oh, as you pointed out. But they're going to have to hang their hat on defense, no question. It's going to be a huge key for them. And to me, you know, it's it's the Boone brothers and, and Caleb and Keelan. It's, it's, uh, it's getting, you know, Rob Whaley Jr. going as well, too, from an offensive standpoint, as well as being the force defensively that, that he's able to be. 
And then, of course, it's the perimeter defense, as I talked about, with G.J. Thomas, with, with Rodriguez and Jackie Johnson, uh, along with, uh, you know, getting Justin Webster back healthy again uh, and, and close to 100%. They are going to be formidable on the defensive end of the floor, Tommy. And that's going to be a big key to not just these last four games of the Mountain West regular season, but what it is that they do when it comes to the Mountain West tournament. I Look. I've covered this team since 2011, Tommy. And obviously I remember the last time they were in the tournament was in 2013 against Cal, which uh, Alan Crabb and company knocked them off. This is the most intriguing lead up to a postseason and a Mountain West tournament that I can remember in the last seven to eight years at least. It really is because of what their capabilities are from a defensive standpoint and offensively. Look, they offensively they can play with, with pretty much anybody in the conference. So uh, my big question mark, though, Tommy, I'm telling you, it all comes back to Kevin Kruger. I mean, it really does. Look, I get it. Some of these players are young guys. Obviously, when you're talking about T.J. Thomas, as someone who could still be a, you know, a senior in high school, but he's projected to be an NBA-type talent. That's how good he is, and he's starting to, uh, you know, starting to portray that in a way. Um, when it comes to both Caleb and Keelan Boone, they are both talented guys that are going to show out. But I, I just don't know. I mean, Kevin Kruger is, to me, the, the jury's still out on him, Tommy. I mean, it really is uh, as a coach. And uh, we talked about this, you know, uh, come hell or high water as far as his, what we think his coaching ability is or his ceiling or whatever. Um, I think as much that what's going to be extremely important for them going down the stretch here and into the Mountain West tournament is, you know, is Kevin Kruger. And what it, and 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 what it is he does as far as adjustments, how he handles this from a from a from a psychological standpoint going down the stretch here, because he's been someone at times who's been unsure of himself. He's been he's been someone who has has come off as uh, almost throw my hands in the air type guy at times, Tommy, if you know what I mean. And so I'm going to be extremely interested to see how he handles this stretch run of these last four games and leading into the postseason. All right, Chris. I mean, you said the, the jury's still out, which you know I'm not giving you pushback on. Um, what does he have to do to change the jury still being out in your mind? What, what does he have to do this year? Because you can't look forward, okay? Just this year. What does he have to do this year to change Chris Wynn's mind, to change the, the perception of what he has to be as far as the jury still being out on him? Well, I think that, from a, from a team performance standpoint, right? They need to go on the road. They need to, uh, look, we saw what they did to Air Force, you know, in uh, in Colorado Springs last week. Um, this is a team that needs to kind of flex their muscles a little bit against some of these teams. The San Jose State game, UNLV's got to lay, lay, wood, lay wood on them, okay? Uh, obviously, this game against Wyoming. Wyoming's n- not an awful team. And, look, we understand that. And, Tommy, I don't, I don't know if you're aware, but – it's always it's always interesting from a travel standpoint getting to that game up there in Laramie because of uh, you know it's like it's almost like you know jumping on the jumping on the donkey's back you know riding the donkey up there to uh, Cheyenne uh, kind of deal they have to fly and then they have to take a bus and all this kind of stuff but uh, they should be able to be as impressive as they were against Air Force against Wyoming then you got the matchups coming back here you got to you got to you got to smack around San Jose State and then Tommy I want to see them knock off the likes of a San Diego state at home. I think that'd be a big, that'd be a big key to kind of calming the, calming the winds a little bit when it comes to everything Kevin Kruger 
here in Las Vegas, Mr. Barton. And uh, if they're able to get that win, I think that'd be a big deal for them. Now, look, uh, to be completely honest and not be completely Homer-ish in my media analysis, I think they go up to Nevada. I think the Wolfpack catch them there on the final Saturday of the season because, uh, you know, obviously uh, it's a rivalry game and Nevada's going to be looking to close out the season strong. So I'm not going to expect UNLV to go up there and get a win. They could get a win, but I'm not going to expect it. But that's kind of the, you know, the sensibility I, I come with, Tommy, when it comes to Kevin Kruger. Uh, look, I'm not going to act like some expert on what it takes to be a big-time Division One college basketball coach, Tommy. But I will say this. I think that those are some of the things that run in Rebel fans. And more importantly, running Rebel, you know, the higher-ups and the powers that be want to see happen with this basketball team down the stretch that will give them a little bit more confidence on the possibility of retaining Kevin Kruger here at UNLV. Yeah, I, I think he's changing people's minds by the day. I really do. I think the perception yeah. of, you know, what he is certainly changed with that one big win. I, I, you know, I know you said about going up to Nevada. I don't, I don't think that matters. I don't even think, look, winning against San Diego State would be huge, Chris. That would yeah. be a nice win. I think the tournament means everything. And you certainly don't have to win it. But he got that big win under his belt. He's got the team headed in the right direction. I've seen growth this year. I've seen growth since the old, uh, since the uh, Air Force game, right? I mean, UNLV has been looking for a coach for a long time now that gives you a sense of hope, I guess would be the right word. Gives you a sense of, okay, we're heading in the right direction. For the last couple of guys, last few guys that I can tell you, um, it seems like you're almost circling the dream. All right, big win here, big loss after that. Big win here. It, nothing seems like an upward trajectory. I, I don't get the feeling here. I get the feeling that I'm looking at UNLV in a very different light right now. They got a big win under their belt. Maybe I'm a, a prisoner of the moment. That, that certainly could be. But they look to me like they're finding an identity. We talked about the defense. They look to me like, okay, we got a big win under our belt. That's not, we're not done. They're, they don't look like a team that, okay, we got that win and that's it. No, no, no. They're going to play San Diego State a, a tough game, I think, either way. Do they get that win? I'm not sure. But I don't think that's the make or break of the season or the program. And that's a good thing because they already have their signature win, but it's the bigger picture. Going out there, Going 4-0, winning against, uh, you know, getting the revenge game against the Pack, go, going out there and getting a huge win against San Diego State, that would be nice. But I think that this team totally does understand, and it's a complete and utter compliment to the coaching that they do understand. It's building for what is coming up in the postseason. You can't go out meekly. You don't have to win it, but I expect them to have a very good showing. And, and I think I think you're right that the jury is sort of still out. But for me, and, and tell me if this is unfair, to me, that game, the direction that they're going, how they're ending the season in this uh, kind of, uh, we'll, we'll say, prisoner of the moment mindset, I don't know if it, the jury is completely still out for me. I'm starting to buy in. Yeah, you make some solid points regarding kinds of the ebb and flow of this team, right, Tommy? But let me add a couple things, right? So with respect, with thoughts regarding 
projections, right? I mean, let's talk Turkey here. Okay. So UNLV, look, we understand they have four games left. The, you know, best case scenario, they're 4-0. Solid case scenario, the 3-1. They're not going to be in a situation they've been in, Tommy, for what? The last six, seven years where they've been in the mix for the playing game, brother. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's going to be Fresno State, Air Force, and San Jose State. They're going to be battling it out for that playing game. UNLV has either been in the middle or the back end of the of the conference for, you know, the better part of a decade when it comes to going into the Mountain West tournament. So when I say projections, I'm looking at this team right now. Hey, I'm, I'll, I'll lay it out there for you, my friend. Here's the deal. They need to get to the weekend when it comes to the Mountain West tournament. They need to be playing in the semifinal of the Mountain West tournament, okay? That way – that would pretty much solidify their chances of getting a postseason berth, whether it's in the NIT, obviously, uh, or an outside chance of the NCAA tournament, I guess, but definitely the NIT. And then they, they would need, and this has been my prediction all along, along with a lot of people here in town, that if Kevin Kruger can get that one postseason win that they've been able to not get you know, for, the, for a long time, I think that would go a long way to Kevin Kruger keeping his job here. Again, I mean, it's not exactly, you know, huge standards that we have here for UNLV when it comes to this team. Now, I mean, but as we as we move forward here, though, I don't and you talked about kind of, you know, uh, you know, one loss, then a nice then a solid win. Right. And then and then they have another, you know, disappointing loss to the likes of Nevada. And then they come out and get two nice wins. You know, yes, that's been the case. And I don't think you're a prisoner of the moment at all. I thought it was an outstanding win to get against the likes of Colorado State, one of the better teams in the conference. But this has been a seesaw type of team this year to the extent that, you know, look, I am someone who is a media member uh, because of the, you know, social media climate that we have now in, in, uh, on our globe, right, Tommy? It seems like everybody's got a voice and, and everything seems to be amplified when it comes to the fans. And the running sentiment essentially has been what it's been uh here we go again with UNLV right or we're we, you know we're you know sometimes we pull a rabbit out of a hat but then we're not we, we don't really view ourselves as really like a, a, a legitimate big time college basketball you know uh, program from a national standpoint and so i think there's kind of you know there's still that that question mark in a lot of people's eyes and there still is this I don't want to say expectation that they could not reach their potential, but expectation that there still is work to do and the reality that there is still work to do when it comes to this UNLV team. And uh, that begins, of course, with, with the matchup coming up against Wyoming and then uh, the final three games of the season as well, too. Yeah, it's funny to me. Again, you want the revenge game against the pack in a couple of, of you know, a couple of weeks? Yeah, sure. Yep. You want the big game against San Diego State? Absolutely. To me, the Wyoming game feels massive. feels massive because you don't want the letdown, right? I can handle a loss to San Diego State. I can handle a loss on the road, you know, to your rival. I, 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 I can handle those. You don't want to lose the momentum about Wyoming. I think it's a really, really important game. All right, Chris, let's take a quick timeout. When we come back, let's talk about the other upsets. Eight of the top 25 teams this weekend went down. Eight of the top 25 teams lost in the top 25 of college basketball. It was an upset kind of weekend. I want to get your thoughts into 
the nature of college basketball, and also these upsets this weekend. All that and more right after this, right here on Heat Wave Sports. Now back to Heat Wave Sports with Tom Barton. All right, guys, welcome back to the Super Sunday Night Edition. Tom Barton sitting in with Chris Wynn tonight. We are talking top 25 and the eight teams going down. That's right, eight teams, Chris, in the top 25 went down this week. And and just the weekend is just, it was just chaos. It was just pure chaos. But no team going down more. Probably shocked a lot of people. I don't think it shocked sports betters. The line was only two guys, uh, but Duke goes down. Duke was a team that, besides the name, okay, which obviously name recognition is a lot, it, people were starting to talk about them as a legit title contender. They were ranked eighth overall. They were a team that obviously had the big names. We know about, uh, you know, the the Duke bigs. We know what they can be. We know they have the pedigree. We know they have everything that you want. And people started looking at them, started making futures plays on them. And then all of a sudden, they traveled to a good Wake Forest team giving points. And they they not only lose, uh, Chris, but their defense is abused for 47 points in the second half. Wake Forest looked great. Salas hit 29-6. and six. He looked fantastic. He looked like the best player on the court, on a court that's going to have quite a few NBA players. And while I want to sit here, and I would love to take the next hour of this show <laughs> and bash on the Dukies and absolutely ridicule uh, the Blue Devils and tell you, you know, how they're overrated and their 12-4 and ACC record is a little inflated and I never bought into them. I'd love to do that, Chris. But the reality is, is that Wake Forest is a good team. And I want to give them a lot of credit here. A lot is being lost in this win because of Duke being Duke and, uh, and other things that happen in this game. Wake Forest, though, coming out with 47 points in the second half, 47 points against Duke, staring down their cross-state rivals and taking them down. Wake Forest is legit, guys. Wake Forest is 18-9. and nine. 10 and 6 in the ACC. Wake Forest has some big wins. Wake Forest is going to be a tough out in the tournament. This only kind of highlighted what they've been doing this year. So I, I want to give full credit to Wake Forest, but it's also, hey, let, let's talk about Duke a little bit as well. I'm picking up what you're putting down, Tommy, because I'm not someone who's going to sit here and necessarily loves waxing poetic on all things Blue Devils as well, too. But you absolutely, positively have to give the Demon Deacons credit in this tilt. And as you pointed out, the 47 second half points en route to this 83-79 win, which really did get them closer to an NCAA tournament bid for this Wake Forest team. In that second half, I mean, they made, what, 16 to 23 shots? Shot almost 70% after halftime and finished at uh, just over 60% for the game. Andrew Carr, a tremendous game scoring 16 of his 18 points after halftime. And Hunter Salas, huge game, right? 11 of 13 shots he makes in route to 29 points in the, the Demon Deacons getting this win. That featured a lot. I mean, look, it was back and forth, right, Tommy? You're talking about 14 ties, 14 lead changes in this game. So it was a fun college basketball game to watch. And in between a team that is, you know, trying to get themselves back to, you know, the, the national recognition that they had when they had the likes of Chris Paul there, 
you know, even going back to Tim Duncan when these teams were actually formidable in the ACC. And Duke is Duke, right? I mean, they're the number eight team of the country. So, uh, you know, we, so I, yeah, I would happen to agree with you. I think they are a little bit overrated when it, when it comes to uh, their status. But look, it's Duke. So that doesn't really shock me. But I've got a bone to pick, Mr. Barton. And it's not a bone to pick with you, sir. It's a bone to pick with college basketball fan. Tommy Barton, talk to me. What is the deal with, okay, look, I get it. If you want to store in the court, if you're McNeese State or if you're, you know, Wisconsin, Green Bay, and you go and you knock off a number two Purdue or you go to Kansas and win at Fog Allen. Uh, well, actually, no, I'd say those teams are playing you, they're playing you at home in some way, shape or form. And your fans get an unbelievable win out of conference against a powerhouse program. You know what? Okay. I can buy in to your fans storming the court. But Tommy Barton, what is the deal with these teams storming the court in regular season matchups against conference opponents? All right. And I'm not even talking about, you know, bottom feeder teams in the conference, which you might be able to justify at some point that they can storm the court. I'm talking about teams that are decent. And then the fans decide, oh, you know, because they have, an, you know, a number eight next to their name, we're going to, we're going to, you know, and because they're one of the name programs of college basketball, we're going to storm the court anyway. I think it's beyond ridiculous. And then obviously we saw what happened in the aftermath with Kyle Filipowski getting, you know, hobbling after the collision with a fan. Uh, I mean, the good news, I guess, is that he wasn't really hurt that bad. Uh, although he did have, you know, ice on his knee after the game. And he was able to get, uh, you know, his his arms around his manager and his walk-on teammate there, Stanley Borden. But I, I, I don't understand this. And look, I was on X here, and I know I'm going to rant here, Tommy, a little bit. But, uh, you know, if you're a fan storming the court, okay, how are you not looking at where you're going? Like, like if I'm – Tommy B., if I'm a guy who's rolling onto the court, all right, I'm going to look in front of me, okay, and if I see a Duke player who's like seven feet or 6'6 six, six or 6'2", six, I'm not going to just go, you know, charging into the guy as I'm trying to go celebrate a victory. I don't understand how this, you know, elevated to a situation in which a player can actually get hurt. Um, I was a little bit tongue in cheek when I said, you know, this is, you know, I'm shocked that, you know, this is that this hasn't happened sooner. But it should never happen. I mean, I just don't understand why people can't look where they're going, and I don't understand Tommy why you know mid-level or decent college basketball programs their fans feel they need to storm the court after a nice win because they're pathetic idiots i I mean look that's just reality this game tonight uh or yesterday uh Mm -hmm. wake forest was the favorite (laughs) okay Mm -hmm. Uh, like i said you know people might have been shocked around the country but not odds makers not anyone paying attention you cannot storm the court if you're the favorite yeah i mean no, look, like you said, there there are situations where you go, okay, I'm okay with storming the court. To me, you don't storm the court against a rival. You just don't, unless a rival's, you know, absolutely beating you up and it's, uh, uh, you know, somebody ridiculous. But you don't storm the court against a rival. Why give them that satisfaction? Be a fan that understands the game, number one. Number two, you never ever storm the court as a favorite are we kidding me you know 
We had a one-man court storming when IUPUI lost uh, to an unbeaten team or a team that had a uh, had no wins on the season. One dude tried to storm the court. Nobody else did. And I said, yeah, it's because you're not supposed to storm exactly. the court because you get your first win of the year. No, no, there are rules. Storming the court, Chris, is reserved for double-digit underdogs that win a huge game against a top 25 team in your building in a game that you're not supposed to win. And guess what? Not even during the regular season, unless it's a huge spot, it should be reserved for only big things. We are in a generation, and here we go. You talk about your rant. I could go on forever. Where these are the you know uh, participation trophy storm, court storming. Oh, we used to storm the court when a team took out another team in the NCAA tournament. A 16 seed takes out a one. Storm the court if you are the, the team taking down Virginia. All right, UMBC, you go. I'm all for it. But taking down a rival in your own state that you're the favorite against, it's pathetic. And then you mentioned, well, what about these kids storming the court? You know, why can't they see? Well, you're using rationale. There's no rationale. If you're storming the court in that spot, Chris, you're already an idiot. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It really, it, it lessens the fan base. It makes you sound pathetic. And I'm going to liken this to this. Since, since I am in a baseball mind, since all spring training opened up, and we're going to talk about baseball later, it reminds me of the pathetic, sad little Red Sox fans out there. That when Tom Brady won his back-to-back championships at the New England Patriots parade, they were chanting, Yankees suck. Because that's pathetic. There are certain things that fans do that is pathetic. Storming the court as a favorite is pathetic. It shows how just small and menial your college is and your basketball program is if you think beating Duke as a favorite at home deserves a court storm. So, yeah, I I, I hope that you do go on the rant and use this energy and, and rip them apart as much as you can. I couldn't be in more agreement with you. Coach John Shire from Duke also chiming in, Tommy. When, when are we going to ban court storming? How many times does a player have to get into something where they get punched or they get pushed or they get taunted right in their face? It's a dangerous thing, obviously referring, right, Tommy, to you know, kind of the worst-case scenarios that could happen, right? Look, we understand that you know Filipowski got banged up here a little bit and bounced around, but, I mean, these this creates a situation where you could have an altercation, right, on the court where players aren't as receptive, let's put it that way, right, of, of fans coming on the court or a fan decides to square off with a player and then you've got, you know, uh, you know, one of the worst things going to happen in college sports. So, I mean, it just, it just, it doesn't make any. Again, I'll use the phrase that you just used, and that most of us rational, logical people are using. It doesn't make any sense, people. Okay, stop storming the court when you play in the same conference as a team. All right, and you're a team that's expected to go to the, to the NCAA tournament, or you're, a, you know, a program that at least has some name recognition. Stop doing it. It's ridiculous. And only bad things can happen uh, just for your momentary moment to, you know, have jubilation on the court after your team gets a W. It's weak. Stop it. Chris, what is your assessment of, of storming the court, though? Is it 
Is it okay? Should they ban it? I, I don't agree with John Shire. I think that it's got to be reeled in. Uh, I think, you know, that as a fan base, as a collective sports fan base, we have to kind of police it ourselves, make them feel like idiots for doing it, but I don't think it should be banned. I mean, you still have the the visual of, uh, you know, certain certain guys, in the, you know, specifically coaches in the middle of the melee running around and, and celebrating, hugging people. I mean, I like the visual of it. It's crazy. I love the fact that the fans can be involved. I don't think it should be banned, but I understand where he's coming from also. Yeah, I'm in your camp on that. Look, and I'll use the phrase you use as far as like as a collective sports fan base, right? And when I'm talking about sports fans, I'm talking about the fans that are at the game. Just be smart. You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't understand what the mentality is where again, all the circumstances presenting themselves in this game the way it is that you're going to storm the court. No, I don't think they need to ban court storming. I just laid out examples of when I think court storming makes sense, right? And look, there's other upsets on Saturday as well to you. So let me let me toss out an example to you real quick here, Tommy, right? So UCF, they beat Texas Tech, right? Number 23 team in the country. They get the win, 75-61 at home, up, up, down in Orlando, right? Now, say UCF beats you know somebody that's a top five team, right? Say they beat Kansas or they beat, uh, you know, Purdue, or they beat, you know, or name any other year where the top three team in the country comes in to Orlando and plays UCF, and UCF's unranked, and they get a win. Okay, you can make the case that the fans, all right, yeah, court storming, fine, you know. But again, look for the players on the court, okay, and don't run players over. Don't injure players from the other team. Like, there's ways you can do it in which, you know, it's been done for, you know, Decades upon decades, really, where it's been a thing. So I'm on. I I am in agreement with you. I don't think you need to ban it, but there, you know, but just as you just use the phrase, collective sports fans. Hey, collective sports fans, let's all sit back and understand what a court storming moment is, and when there is not a court storming moment. You know what I mean? And then kind of go from there. And you know, like I just pointed out, UCF gets the win. You know, uh, against Texas Tech, you're not going to storm the court. But if it was against somebody that was top five team, you would, right? Um, Kentucky knocks off Alabama, right? Alabama's higher ranked team. The Kentucky fans at Rupp Arena did not storm the court. You know, you know what I'm saying, Tommy? So, like, come on, recognize the situation. Period. Full stop. But isn't it isn't it kind of funny that we're looking back <laughs> and we're saying, you know, Kentucky storming the court against Alabama would have been so exactly. ridiculous? I mean, how hilarious is that, right, Tommy? I mean, it's just hilarious. But it's the same thing, isn't it? I, I mean, Wake Forest, sure, they weren't ranked, but they were the favorite. You know, um, UNLV storming the court against Colorado State. Are, are we doing it? I, I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, I mean, theoretically, yeah. If the, the Demon Deacons are doing it, if we're going by that mindset, right, if we're going by that rationale, absolutely. UNLV fans should have stormed the court. And Kentucky fans should have been rolling all over the Rupp Arena court as well, too, against Alabama. But they didn't. You know why? Because people have perspective, right? They understand the situation. And that uh, that was uh, sanity was suspended a little bit, Tommy, is what I'll say, down there in Winston-Salem, North Carolina on Saturday. Because the fans, they felt like it should be a court-storming moment. Maybe there was a mob mentality when it came to that, right, Tommy? And we've been in crowds before, so maybe that, maybe that kind of leads to it as well, too. But I just keep coming back to this. Come on, man. 
You know, stop it. Understand what the deal is and understand what a court storming situation is and what it isn't. And to me, in my humble opinion, Tommy, and I think in yours too, when it came to the demon deacons knocking off the blue devils, that was not a court stormy moment, my friend. I guess I could be wrong. You know, the big news here is that uh, obviously a big name player from Duke goes down. We don't know what the extent of the injury is. Um, everyone's going to be looking at Filipowski and wondering, you know, oh my goodness, did, did this derail Duke's season? How, how badly hurt is he? But I want to take that out for a moment. We're ripping apart the idea itself of court storming. So I did a little research. You, you wanted some court storming. Well, I got I got some court storming. Get some info, right, Mr. Barney? Hook me up. I got I came up with two that uh I, I'm sorry, I came up with three. That was is pretty pathetic. Okay. Now, look, Wake Forest did this before. It's not one of my three, but Wake Forest did this before. They stormed the court against North Carolina State, who was number 18 at the country uh, in the country at the time. Um, yeah, that was kind of pathetic. Uh, okay, that 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 has happened before. But here's my top three, in order of most uh, least pathetic to most pathetic. Ready? Yeah. Number three, number thirteen Butler upsets number eight Gonzaga. They scored stormed the court for that one, Chris. Okay, that was that's pretty pathetic. Not as pathetic as North Carolina, number thirteen UNC. Number 13, the Tar Heels stormed the court after beating number four, Duke. That is a pathetic moment. But it is not the most pathetic moment. The most pathetic storm of the court of all time, Chris. San Diego State, right here in the Mountain West. San Diego State, they rushed the court after winning a quarterfinal round in the NIT against St. Mary's. Yeah, those are the three most pathetic court stormings that I could come up with. That's some brutal stuff, my friend. And it kind of leads us into the Sunday action, and I want to get your take because it's your neck of the woods. I didn't see the end of the game, Tommy, but what went down at Madison Square Garden in New York as the you know St. John's was able to knock off number 15 Creighton, 80-66, to 66. Uh, basically what one game after Rick Pitino dressed down his guys and threw a bunch of them under the bus, uh, the, uh, St. John's ends up getting a nice win over Creighton with Rick Pitino dressed in all white from head to toe, by the way. But I was not, I did not see the end of the game, Mr. Barton, but, uh, were the St. John's faithful, uh, rolling onto the court at MSG after that W over the Blue Jays? Huh. They don't usually allow it to happen at MSG. <laughs> You know, yeah, it, it's kind of the the real people arena, you know. So um, yeah. they don't usually let that happen. Look, it, this is an interesting game overall, though. I told you guys before the year, I have a ticket on UConn and Creighton to win it all. I liked Creighton before the year, but as the year began, and I mentioned this a few times on the air, they're just so reliant upon the three ball that when it's just not falling, you have performances like this, and performance that you look back and you go, wow. This is a team, if they get hot, man, they're in the Final Four. If they don't, you, you might be wanting to bet against them in round one. I mean, that that's the kind of team that you're looking at. And St. John's, you mentioned it. You know, 
We haven't talked about Patino a lot on the show. Nationally, he's getting some attention, but he's not getting the attention that we maybe have thought that he would walk in and kind of transform the St. John's uh, team. A lot of background noise about what he has said to his team privately, what he has said to other people about his team. But it worked, right? I, I mean, you can question Patino in so many ways. Question what he wears, how he carries himself, what he does, where he eats his Italian meals, where whatever you want to do about questioning Patino. He gets a lot of it. He gets a lot of flack. A lot of it's deserved, sure. But this worked. Creighton's coming in. You said it. Dress down his team. You have a home game. St. John's has been playing well, but they just couldn't get over the hump. They couldn't win that big game. And here it is. Here you go, right? Uh, Jenkins puts up 27 points, leading the way, and looks uh, basically unstoppable. I'm not telling you that Patino's a genius for what he did to his team, but Chris, don't we have to kind of give credit where credit is due? It worked. Absolutely. And to a quick note here, as you roll down the t- the bottom of the hour, right? Uh, these are two teams going really in, in different directions. When it came to St. John's playing against big-time teams, as you pointed out, right? 0-5, entering against top 25 teams' opponents this season. And then Creighton, of course, you know, coming off an eye-opening blowout at UConn there at home on Tuesday night, which essentially ended the Huskies, what, 14-game winning streak. And this is a Blue Jays team that, what, won four straight, 7-9. and nine. And, uh, you know, Trey Alexander was able to get going a little bit with his 31 in the game. But uh, it is kind of eye-opening to see the Blue Jays with 66 points in this game against St. John's. Soriano had a solid game for them, as well as Glenn Taylor Jr. as well, too. So, uh, you know, I don't know how much this says about St. John's' program necessarily. But uh, no question. I mean, look, Rick Pitino, his, his resume speaks for itself. You know, we get it. Some of the stuff off the court or whatever that he's been uh, that has been controversial over the years. We get that. But from a coaching standpoint, particularly at the, at the college level for Rick Pitino, uh, he, he has uh, a lot of positive positive things that he can hang his hat on with respect to what he has done in the game of college basketball. Well, speaking the overall game of college basketball, let, let's let's take a quick time out, Chris. When yep. we come back. I want to finish up. I, I want your thoughts on the college basketball season as a whole. Uh, got a little bit of NBA, NHL if we have time. I have to talk to you about the free agents Cody Bellinger does sign. Is it a good landing spot for him? How mad would you be if you are Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell still without a team? Would you be as mad? Would you be as upset as everybody seems to be about these uniforms? I want to get into that and a little bit of Major League Baseball as well. All that and more, hour number two coming up right after this, right here on Heat Wave Sports. Now back to Heat Wave Sports. All right, guys, welcome back. Hour number two, Heat Wave Sports. Tom Barton here from TomBartonSports.com, sitting in with Chris Wynn. Chris, TomBartonSports.com, it's been a, a pretty uh, pretty fun <laughs> last couple of days. Uh Three and one last couple of days, and and I'm absolutely crushing it in college basketball. Guys, jump on board, TomBartonSports.com. Look, you know, I, I sit here year after year, season after season, and I kind of give my spiel. I, I, I try not to incorporate it too much into the show. Here, here's my spiel. I'd love to have you guys a part of it. Love to have you a part of the winning. And inevitably, I always get people saying, you know, I listen to your show, and 
I didn't even know what your website was. So I, I apparently have to say it a little bit more. So it's TomBartonSports.com. Um, for 200 bucks, you get 30 days of plays. Every single play that I give out, that includes hockey, which I had tonight, a winner in hockey I had tonight, a three-in-one college basketball game uh, day, which I had yesterday. You get every college basketball game. NBA, which I am unbeaten this year in the NBA. You'll get Major League Baseball once uh, the games start kicking up. I don't usually do early spring training games. So you're going to get every single thing, including all my Major League Baseball futures plays. That includes, yes, it includes the NCAA tournament. There are guys out there selling packages for thousands of dollars for their first round of the tournament. You're going to get everything that I give out at TomBartonSports.com. Here's the beauty. No commission, no upgrades, no extra fees. But there's also, what I do is I give a three-day package. Three days, see see the way that we do business. See how you log on, you get your plays every day, or they're in your email account, or your, your text message, however you'd like to receive the plays for three days. 25 bucks. 25 bucks, guys. You can't even buy a fast food meal uh, for two people for $25. Come and check it out. It's TomBartonSports.com. Now, Chris, we were talking about college basketball. I just want to kind of get your your mindset. Like I said, eight teams went down. Um, the Big East had a big upset. The ACC had a big upset. You could argue those two conferences might be the two best conferences in all of college basketball. A lot of people looking at the SEC. Alabama goes down. Kentucky scored 117 in that game. Well, there's a, a prevailing trend throughout college basketball this year, and that is, I mean, teams are just stopping. They, they just stop playing defense. And they, I mean, they just have. Teams are going well into the 80s and 90s, it seems like, nightly. If you were a sports better like myself, uh, team total overs are being set into the mid-80s, and, and they're, they're cashing. They're going over. But overall, Chris, this season to me has been a lot of overs. It's been a lot of offense. It's also been a lot of parity. I'm looking at the college basketball season and, and you look at the rankings and you go, man, I usually at this time have it down to about eh, about six or seven teams that could win the championship. Yeah, they want to tell us in the tournament anything can happen. Yeah, they want to tell us in the tournament 64 teams, 68 teams have a chance. We know eh, probably about, you know, Four or five teams really have a chance. This year, I think it goes kind of deep. Um, before Duke went down today, I think people would have included them. You could go all the way down. You could probably argue 15, 16 teams and, and put up together a compelling argument. UConn looks dominant. Houston looks pretty good. I get it. Purdue is right there. Arizona's right there. But they're not without warts. They're not without problems. So, Talk to me about the overall feel of the college basketball season for you. Yeah, there's no question that there is intrigue across the board with this season. Now, you do have the you know the defending national champions sitting there at the top of the standings and, and at the top of the rankings, quite frankly, with just the two losses. And you have some teams that uh, that offer a lot of intrigue, right, when it's, when it's either the Cougars out of Houston, whether it's the likes of, of the Boilermakers also, who were able to you know kind of get a win – although they did not cover in this matchup, but today against Michigan up in Ann Arbor. Uh, but they're sitting there at 23-3, and three, and they are formidable as all get-out, right? And then you've got some of those teams, you know, that you could probably make a case for that are even further down the top 10, right? I mean, there's people out there that would probably make a better case that a team like a 20-6 and six Kansas 
could win a national championship right before you would even look at the likes of a Marquette or an Iowa State where, you know, T.J. Otzelberger, former UNLV head coach, has a team that's sitting at number six in the country at 20 and five and playing pretty well in the Big 12. And, you know, uh, and, and obviously, but think about this, right, Tommy? You talked about the word parity, right? I mean, you look at this team, you look at the teams that are in the top 10, and you look at some of the teams that you would make a case for to win a national championship. I don't hear anybody making a case for a team like in Arizona, right, at 20 and 5. I mean, nobody is talking about the Wildcats of Arizona. Nobody really is talking about Tennessee at number 5, at 19 and 6, right, to, as a team that could win a national championship. I guess you could maybe, you know, figure out a way to make the case, but I really don't hear it. Obviously, we talked about Duke earlier, right? 20 and 5 teams sitting, you know, in the top 10 of the country. Um, Baylor, who would get taken out by Houston, obviously, yesterday um, in that matchup. Uh, Baylor just outside the top 10, right? 19 and 6. And you got you got some teams that are, you know, from 10 to 15 that are, that again, you could probably make a case for a national champ or a team that could get to the final weekend of the big dance and make some noise, right? Whether it's the Crimson Tide, whether it's the, the Fighting Illini, um, and even a team like Auburn or, you know, of course, Creighton. So uh, I think parity is absolutely the word that you can use. Um, but when it comes right down to it, I think there's three teams that people are looking at and saying, oh, you know, uh, you, can, you can make the best case for the Huskies, for the Cougars, and for the Boilermakers to probably win a championship, right? But there could be, Look, we saw it last year, Tommy, right? Aztecs make a run all the way to the, you know, the national title game out of a, you know, out of a barren conference that was the Mountain West for the last, you know, the last the last handful of times that the San Diego State was in the tournament and even their their high as a number 2 seed, they laid an egg in the tournament. So, that was kind of a shocker. I guess you could have some type of scenario that plays out like that where you have I don't know, like a Washington State, right? or a Colorado State, or a Dayton that, you know, by the way, Dayton's sitting at 21 and four, right, on the season. You could have a situation in which one of those teams could end up in the final four. But really, when it comes right down to it, the nitty gritty, sir, and when it comes down to the, the big time teams, it's Connecticut, it's Houston, and it's probably Purdue. You know, Purdue has coaching problems. We'll just say that when it comes to, you know, to deep, tournament runs. Arizona has coaching problems when it comes to deep tournament runs. Tennessee has coaching problems when it comes to deep tournament runs. Iowa State's never really been there. Marquette hasn't been there in forever. Um, You know, you you have a separation before you get to the blue bloods of Duke, Kansas, North Carolinas of the world, right? The the Kentuckys of the world. You have a separation. Which is the most dangerous team? You still going with Purdue there? Um, or is it a team that, that, that I didn't mention? Who is the most dangerous team to suddenly, you know, inside the top 20, of course, who's that dangerous team that you look at and you're going, man, there's a lot left in the tank there if they could correct it. I'm not talking about UConn and Houston. I'm talking about a team that either hasn't been there, it's a new name there, somebody we haven't paid attention to, maybe an Illinois is the team for you. Who's that team? The team to me, I gotta say, Tommy, it's the Jayhawks. It's Lawrence, Kansas. When you have a coach, you know that has a pedigree like that. When you have talent, the likes of KJ Adams, you know Parker Braun, obviously Hunter Dickinson, the transfer in. You, I mean, you know, 
uh, Johnny Furby. Furphy has kind of emerged as as a guy that can be a big time player. Dewan Harris. They've had some injury issues as well too, obviously with McCullers and and, uh, and others. Timberlake was able to emerge in the last game. To me, it really is Kansas. I mean, they're they're a team that is kind of a wild card. You you almost expect like they can they can absolutely beat any team in the country and at times can be dominant of, of many teams in the country. But they can also you know also play down to their competition at times too as well too. So. That is probably the team that that immediately jumps out at me. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's super interesting to take a look at the Houston Cougars, right? Uh, all of us that follow college basketball or have covered it, obviously remember those great Houston Cougar teams from 30-plus years ago. And it's kind of cool to see this emergence of this Cougar program getting back into the mix on a national level, right? And when you've got the likes of Jamal Sheen – uh, and some of these others that uh, are big time players, right? And Malik Wilson and others. So they they are going to be formidable as all get out. Also, once we get to postseason play, so I'm going to be I'm going to be super curious to see what you know what wh- what they're able to do. Um, the kind of the movement of conferences too with with Houston and uh, you know the juggling of competition levels basically is what's going on here with this program. It's going to be fun to see exactly you know where they stack up. We got kind of a taste of it last year with Houston, but uh, those are really the two teams that I look at, Tommy. That that I think could could end up being uh, teams that mess with the likes of the, of the Huskies and and the Boilermakers, you know, and the Wildcats and the Volunteers. What about what about San Diego State? Um, we mentioned them playing UNLV. They're inside the top twenty again. Okay, they're a twenty-one team again. Uh, they seem to be overlooked again, and we're talking about in a couple of weeks they they might um, they might drop to UNLV, and I'm looking at the other side of this, and I'm saying, look, let's look at San Diego State's resume, okay? And you start to to break down the Aztecs, okay, who uh, perennially just kind of get overlooked. San Diego State, is, I don't want to say they're limping to the finish, but three losses in their last what seven games, uh, you don't like to see that. But they do have some big wins on their schedule. Uh, you know, wi- winning against Washington, winning against St. Mary's. Th- those are nice wins. But they don't have the signature wins this year. Is San Diego State a sleeper here? A team that we're once again not giving the respect that they deserve? Or are they a product of generally a weak schedule and sort of sort of limping to the finish line? I think, Tommy, there's no question that the Aztecs kind of like a team lurking in the weeds type of feel here. Um, you talked about the recent losses. It's no shame to go on the road in Reno and to lose to Nevada that way in overtime, right? It's no shame, in my opinion, to go up, you know, up to Logan, Utah and, and lose that game by five points to a Utah State team right now that's, I believe, top of the conference. So um, it's not an Aztec team that was loaded like last year. From a roster standpoint, you do love Ladie, what he brings to the table, right? And you love some of these other pieces that they have, whether it's Micah Parrish, whether it's Tram, Tramel, all you know, whether it's Reese Waters and beyond. Um, but they do have some. They did lose some guys to the NBA, essentially that that from that that uh, championship game runner-up status team. Um, from a coaching standpoint, look, I love Dutch. He, he's not. He's not. You're not going to think of you know Brian Dutcher as, you know, a Coach K or even a Tom Izzo or someone on that level. But he is he's a solid coach. 
So I think they're absolutely a team that can be lurking in the weeds. Do I have an expectation that they could end up in the Sweet 16, though, or even make a run You know, that as improbable as last year? No, I don't think they are, because I don't even think they're the best team in the conference. Even though they are ranked right now uh, in, in the top 20, I think that uh, definitely I think Utah State's a better basketball team. So uh, they could prove me wrong, right, they, especially here down the stretch and then, of course, going into the Mountain West tournament. But I think that it's – it's in in my humble opinion, I think it's a team that most likely is going to take a step back as far as what they do postseason wise, but they're still very formidable and could throw a monkey wrench into things. You know, Ed, that was that was not a quick <coughs> that, that was that, but that was a pretty bold statement. Number nineteen, San Diego State, is not as good as Utah State, according to you. Yeah. Number twenty two, Colorado State. Coming in, obviously, this is before the UNLV loss. Not as good as Utah State. As a matter of fact, Utah State received 22 votes to get into the top 25 before this week. And Nevada had 11. And you're going with Utah State as the best team in this tournament. Does that mean you expect them to win the tournament? Or do you think that they're going to end off the regular season ranked higher than the other teams? I think that they're going to end the regular season. Look, they've been in the top 25, obviously, you know, mostly at 22 most of the season uh, around that area. Um, I think they end up getting back into the top 25. And look, I mean, I look at this team, obviously, and it, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say from a talent standpoint, you're going to go, you're, you're going to look at Duje and Johnson and, you know, uh, and Seiko and these guys and say, oh, yeah, from a talent standpoint, they're clear and above the best team in the conference. I just have a feel. I think their situation and uh, looking at their schedule down the stretch, I just think they're in a better position in which they're going to be able to kind of uh, kind of have an opportunity to impress, as I guess is the way I'm going to describe it. And so, therefore, I, that's why I think that they're going to end up being the best team in the conference. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it's tough to say. Look, I mean, it's easy for, you know, Chris Wynn to come out here and, and make Captain Obvious statement that you're – you know, they're 10 and four and there's, you know, they're 22 and five in the conference. So, you know, it's, you know, and they're tied with Boise state at the top of the conference. So, you know, what are we talking about here? But uh, I just think that it's look, they've, you know, uh, they haven't been exactly, you know, they've been unbelievable at home, right? 12 and one at home. They've run into some bumps and roads on the road, but uh, I mean, the Broncos are a team that's won three straight right there on their heels. Right. So they're going to, it's not like they're going to be able there's no going to be there's going to be no cakewalk for the for the Aggies down the stretch here. So they're going to they're going to be able to keep their foot on the gas, so to speak, and still be able to, you know, I think they're going to be, be able to perform and kind of flex their muscles and show that they're that they're a team that is formidable when it comes to the Mountain West. Chris, I feel like every time that we talk every uh, couple of weeks or so, I ask you about how many teams you think are going to make it into the, the tournament from the Mountain West. And I've had this conversation with you on the air. I've had this conversation with Tim on the air. It's varying degrees of, of what people believe. And anytime we give out a, a number, I get two or three emails, a couple of texts. Uh, people hit me up over at Tom Barton Sports over on Twitter and, and, and telling me we were how wrong we were. So I'm looking at the field and I'm going, where we currently stand, San Diego State, Colorado State, Utah State, maybe Nevada. I still think, and I've said this for a while, I still think the Mountain West is strong enough this year to give me three, and I think it's got an outside shot at four. 
That is barring no UNLV winning the uh, tournament kind of talk, right? I think Mountain West is going to get a solid three teams this year, and I'm willing to make the argument that they could get four. I know it's fluctuated, and I know I've asked the question before, but looking at it after the upset this weekend by UNLV, looking at it as uh, we sit here, I, I don't think we've talked for a couple of weeks, how many teams are getting into the NCAA tournament? Yeah, so obviously 2023, right? Four teams. The, you know, the Mountain West has had 59 NCAA tournament appearances in league history, uh, and four teams was a lot last year, right, with Boise State, Utah State, Nevada, and San Diego State. I think it's fair what you're saying regarding, you know, as far as the, the uh, possibility of those teams. Now, look, we are obviously going to see what the Aggies, what the Broncos, what the Aztecs, and it's particularly the Wolfpack with doing the Mountain West Conference Tournament could go a long way here. But when you got teams that are floating around, you know, 22 and six records and 21 and seven and, you know, 19 and eight in Boise State's case, um, you know, Boise State's got some work to do, right? I think San Diego State's going to get in, uh, you know, minus, you know, uh, not an epic collapse, but a collapse in which they end up falling to double digit losses or something, right? And they don't have any type of showing whatsoever in the Mountain West tournament, which I just, you just don't see it happening. Look, this, I mean, the Aztecs are 13 and 0, right, at home in the conference. So I just don't see it. Uh, I think I would concur with your assessment completely. I think they're pretty much a lock to get three teams in, but they could get four in. They could get four in. And look, UNLV could be that fourth team, Tommy. I'm telling you right now, if they, if, if, if they, UNLV finishes the season, uh, you know, 13 and 5 in the conference and 20 and 10 in the conference, and then they get to, I don't know, like the semifinals or at the finals and then, or heaven forbid they win the NCAA, you know, obviously if they win, they get in automatically. I mean, the the NCAA tournament is going to take a hard look at UNLV if that, if that scenario plays out. Right. So I know I'm being kind of, you know, uh, tunnel vision ish when it comes to UNLV in in this point. And, and look, Nevada could do the same thing, right? Nevada could end up uh, running, running the table these last four games or whatever, you know, whatever they have left in the season. And then, uh, having a stellar showing also in the Mountain West tournament. So I think it's pretty much a lock. They'll get three. They could get four. They're not getting five. Okay. So, and by the way, I'm kind of, we're kind of just throwing out New Mexico here uh, as a team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you are throwing them out. Maybe I'm just ignoring them and Tom, you're going to bring them up, but uh, you know, New Mexico, you know, New Mexico, 21 and seven on the season. And uh, sitting, I get, like I pointed out before, half game back of uh, Nevada and UNLV in the conference. So, uh, oh, and by the way, forgetting about Colorado State too. So Colorado State twenty and eight on the season too. Also, so it 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 gives room for opportunity is the way I'll put it for essentially the top seven teams in the conference, and there could be you know some some jumbling around, and maybe some teams make themselves make themselves an opportunity to get postseason opportunities later on down the line. Yeah, I'm looking at this and I'm going. I, I'm always in the same spot. Like I, I, I follow the Mountain West, and I always go, man. I, I hope for that extra team. I seem like I'm always let down. I root for the Ivy Leagues. This is the first year I thought, okay, well, not the first year, but there's another year where I actually thought, okay, they deserve two, and then Cornell went down last night. So you know, I know what it's like to kind of get shafted on that last team. I just yep. feel like Mountain West has such a good resume. You even mentioned, let's even throw New Mexico in there. I mean. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting if somebody outside the big boys wins the tournament. If UNLV wins the tournament, 
I think they get four in. You know, I mean, if New Mexico wins the tournament, I think they get four in. So Mountain West is going to have a pretty good showing, at least I think, with four games to go. All right, Chris, that's a little college basketball. I wanted to get deep into this because it's been a little while. People starting to kind of pay attention. March is on its way. People think March Madness doesn't start until the tournament. No, March Madness starts in March, okay? And it started a little bit tonight. But I want to get into Major League Baseball. Baseball is officially, has officially started. When we get back, I want to talk to you about the free agents because yep. this does loom large. This is, these guys are not mediocre free agents here. We're not talking about Elvis Andrews, who, who is a nice player, but okay, he's unsigned. No, no, no. We're talking about Cy Young winner, a, a World Series, you know, champion. We're talking about big time names that are not signed and one guy that did sign. And I'm going to ask you about his landing spot. All that and more right after this, right here on Heat Wave Sports. Now back to Heat Wave Sports with Tom Martin. All right, guys, we're in the home stretch here. Heat Wave Sports, Tom Martin, TomMartinSports.com. Chris Wynn sitting in with me. Go check about it. Christian Wynn over on the X, over on Twitter. It is Chris Wynn. He's, he's everywhere. He's always everywhere. And he's here with us today. As we talk about a little bit of Major League Baseball, Chris, I don't know how, you know, you go about it. But, man, I am there for pitchers and catchers. I am there for the popping of the glove. I am there the moment that these guys take the field. I I love spring training. But there is a trend that's been going on, I'm going to say for the better part of a decade now, where, uh, I mean, big-name players are just not signed. They are just not signed. And it always seems to be Boris clients. Sure, I get it. This year is particularly disturbing because of how much a swing I think the two pitchers unsigned can be. But before we get into them, I want to talk about the other Boris client that did sign today. Cody Bellinger signs. Um, Cody Bellinger was looking for a massive payday. Cody Bellinger was holding out for just a massive payday. Um, Cody Bellinger goes back to the same team that he was at, which wound up being pretty decent, but he didn't get that massive payday. Scott Boris promised him eight, nine, 10 years. Scott Boris promised him, uh, you know, two, $300 million a year. It's getting late in the day. It's getting late early. As Yogi would say, he settles on a three year, $80 million deal with the Cubs. I think it's a great spot for him. I think it's a good spot for the Cubs. I think they got him at a relative discount. I mean, look, he's going to make $30 million this year, uh, but a relative discount as to what Scott Boris was offering him. So talk to me about Bellinger particularly. Look, I think it's a good landing spot for him. Absolutely, Tommy. And to uh, with respect to your comments regarding spring training, I'm I'm amped up, my friend. I get juiced when I see that. That sunrise, that is spring training, you know, the eternal optimism. That is all things baseball fans. When this time of year rolls around, everybody is zero and zero. And you have, you know, overblown expectations for every franchise in Major League Baseball. And then I get, uh, you know, a little chuckle out of uh, Met fan because Met fan is Met fan and the Mets are the Mets. So it's always interesting to see that. But talking about uh, the likes of uh, Cody Bellinger, here's the deal, right, Tommy? Uh, early in the offseason, right? The consensus was once, you know, Shoyo Tati and uh, Yamamoto side, you know, this offseason, 
you know, that was going to kind of be the springboard, right, for the rest of Major League uh, Baseball free agency market would basically follow suit. Now, look, there were a number of notable deals that were side, but Bellinger was among that group that was known as the Boris Four, right, along with Blake Snell, Montgomery, and, of course, uh, uh, you know, Chapman as well, too. And, uh, you know, having him signed to that, you know, shorter-term deal that's front-loaded with a pair of $30 million salaries in, you know, 24 and 25, um, this could be a sign that other Boris clients will be, you know, kind of looking for that same type of contract, right? You look at the likes of Blake Snell. Maybe Blake Snell goes that direction as well, too. And, of course, you know, first thing I thought of when Cody Bellinger signed this deal was the Carlos Correa deal, right, that was made with Minnesota, where, you know, uh, you know, it, it wasn't the $200 million deal long-term, but it was a shorter-term deal, with, you know, with the lower AAV and, and uh, you know, with, with more options. So that's the first thing that came to my mind, Tommy, when it came to, uh, you know, what was about to transpire here. So, I mean, him going there, you'd think, okay, the, the Cubs might be done, right? No, the Cubs might not be done, Tom Barton. You know, uh, because Chicago's been viewed as kind of a potential landing spot for Chapman as well, too. And you might think that it takes them out of the conversation, right, uh, for a mix for the third baseman. But I don't I don't think that's the case. Look, the payroll for the Cubs remains – it's still, what, $30 million away from the competitive balance tax threshold. So there's room there that they could put another decent contract without surpassing that 237 mark. So, uh, you know, if Chapman's willing to take a deal – with a, you know, a very similar structure to Bellinger, uh, you know, I'll wait with a lower AAV and probably, you know, a total guarantee, the Cubs could still be looking there. It, look, Morrell, you know, he's kind of going to be the guy, right? Supposed to spend a lot of time at third, but he's they could also move him around too, right? He could end up being a utility guy. He could be of a DH. So um, Chapman, we obviously would give the Cubs much better from a defensive standpoint, uh, presence there at third base. So assuming that there's an opt-out clause is built in after, you know, 24 and 25, you know, Chapman would still be able to kind of take a look at things as soon as next year. So that I don't think the Cubs are out of the market because of the signing of Bellinger. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. Look, I, I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, Blake Snell, Montgomery, Chapman, uh, and even J.D. Martinez, right? J.D. Martinez turned down that one-year deal for $14 million from San Francisco, and then the Giants, of course, signed Solaire for that three-year $42 million deal who, by the way, is also represented by Scott Boris. So Scott Boris all over the place, Tommy Barton, when it comes to uh, free agency and offseason in the 2024 season. So uh, I'll be uh, extremely intrigued. Look, I'm, as a Detroit Tigers fan, there was some discussion amongst the Detroit media and even fans about bringing J.D. Martinez back in the mix for the Tigers. I don't know how receptive you'd be to that because Detroit's not really a contender. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about talents that are still out there and guys, even if you're looking at it like, hey, even if you're looking at Trevor Bauer, right? Trevor Bauer. I mean, is the team going to take a stab at that guy too? And uh, and, and would he be someone that'd be formidable to, to, to add to your roster as well too? So uh, there's still plenty of uh, landing spots, so to speak, for some of these top-tier talents out there in Major League Baseball. You know, I, I look at Cody Bellinger in this spot not as a a giant difference maker, which which is weird. Look, I looked at him as a bat that is a difference making bat. I thought if he went to the right spot and the right team, he could propel that team. Maybe it's because I saw him there last year. I think it's a good landing spot for him. I think it's a terrible business move that Boris had. 
Uh, it's a good deal for the Cubs because they needed that pop. But he doesn't sway the needle for me in terms of all of a sudden I think the Cubs could compete for a World Series. Now, maybe that makes them a favorite in a weak division, a division where I think the Pirates will be better, but they're they're not the best. St. Louis has all kinds of problems in the rotation. Cincinnati's still very young. Uh, you know, you you look at that division and you go, okay, it's a winnable division now with the Cubs. Uh, Milwaukee trading Burns. And, and I think you have to kind of look at, Bur- at at Bellinger and say, did he swing the pendulum in the division? Sure. Did he swing it overall? No, not really for me. Had he gone to a different team? Maybe. But the two guys that you mentioned, I think that they can swing that overall pendulum. Now, the Trevor Bauer, it's kind of a dice roll. Matt Chapman, defensively, I like him. Offensively, he's very inconsistent. Not a guy that swings it for me. You know, he's kind of the cherry on top as opposed to the swing the pendulum. Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell, though, can certainly do that. Snell to a much bigger degree. I think if Blake Snell lands on the right team, he can take a team from you're a solid playoff team to wow. You have to be considered one of the, the contenders for a championship. He can take a team that is a middling, maybe a playoff team, to a contender for a championship. I mean, that's how big I think Blake Snell can be. Now, look, he's got his issues. He only goes five, six innings, right? Um, any of the, you guys that follow not Guy Eddie on, on Twitter, right? Uh, you'll see guys just don't go deep into games. I get it. He doesn't go deep into games. I get it. He doesn't give you quality starts. I get it. But he's still a Cy Young winner, two-time Cy Young winner. He's still a guy that if you have a good back end of the bullpen, he could absolutely swing the pendulum. So I'm starting to find teams. And Jordan Montgomery, uh, we know he can perform on the big stage. So I'm starting to find teams that that pendulum is being swung. You start to look at the New York With respect to both Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery, and this might make uh, fans down in Orange County pretty happy, including Tommy, Tim, or excuse me, Tim Oglesby neighborhood, my friend. Uh, Blake Snell, obviously the you know the National League Cy Young Award winner uh, last year. He already had obviously we know he has an offer from the Yankees, okay? But the Angels are looking at both Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell. Make no mistake about it, okay? They continue to linger around the situation regarding Snell. Uh, even though a strong market really hasn't surfaced for him yet, which is kind of you know mind-boggling to me, to be honest with you. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, by the way, Tommy, to see Snell kind of agree to a deal like Bellinger's, right? I talked about, obviously, uh, you know, some other players going along those same lines, but we have you know, a higher average annual value up front along with yearly opt-outs so that he can you know, maybe test the market in a year or two. Um, and Jordan Montgomery has also drawn interest from the Angels, Tommy, right? Um, not... Montgomery looked like he's going to head to the Angels, pretty quite frankly. And uh, you thought they were going to either get Montgomery or Snell down there in Anaheim. Now, what's also interesting too, right? Even though they're a team that probably is going to be the, one of the worst teams in the American League East, the Red Sox are still being described, Mr. Barton, as a team on the periphery when it comes to the Montgomery situation as well too. Although the Red Sox, they're probably in their situation – they're probably waiting for the price to come down a little bit when it comes to Montgomery. So, um, you know, kind of a short, shorter-term deal with opt-outs. That's something that would work in Boston for the Red Sox. But uh, what do you think about the scenarios that, uh, you know, either one of those guys or both could be in the mix when it comes to the Angels, which, you know, and a quick point, I'll, I'll, uh, 
I'll dip out on this. I mean, the Angels, do we consider them a playoff team? Not really, right? Well, no, that's what I was going to say. I, I, I hear the yeah. Angels. Now, now with Cody Sanga going down, you hear the Mets. That doesn't swing the pendulum for me. I mean, maybe it makes the Angels a, a playoff team. Maybe it makes the Mets a playoff team. But I'm looking at Blake Snell, and I'm going, if you are the New York Yankees, we know that they already have an offer on the table. Um, if you're the New York Yankees, doesn't Blake Snell make you probably the AL favorites? If you're the Baltimore Orioles, you just lost Kyle Bradish. You went all in on Corbin Burns, right? Uh, doesn't that make the Orioles, if they get Snell, the, the AL favorites? I mean, he is an arm that you insert and you become an AL favorite or an NL favorite. And then we go to the team that I wanted to talk to you about. And that's the Los Angeles Dodgers. Look, you could talk to me all you want, Dodger fans, about, well, we have depth in the rotation. You know, um, we we have... You know, we, we have guys that can step in. Clayton Kershaw is not starting until after the All-Star break, right? Walker Bueller, we don't know what you're going to get from him this year. Let, let's let's not act like we know. Nick Frasso maybe throws in a start. Tyler Glasnow is good for, what, 130 innings? He's not going deep into games, and he's certainly not starting, you know, 200 innings this year. James Paxton, 120 innings, you're going to be happy. Gavin Stone, are we kidding me? You know, uh, a, a Ryan Yarborough, an Emmett Sheehan, all these guys, a, a, a Miller, all of the guys that the Dodgers have, you're stringing together starts. I think the Yankees and the Dodgers are both sort of all in this year. Dodgers going with, with Otani, the Yankees turning around and going with uh, with Soto, and even Baltimore with what they just did with Burns, who is a pending free agent and now has the Bradish news. Sure, the Mets or Angels might swoop in here. Sure, maybe the Cubs are still a player. I keep hearing maybe the Cubs actually, you know, are one of those teams that, that could still be in the mix. Absolutely. The Rangers have to be watched because they know what Montgomery's going to give them. I have heard Philly will be sniffing around the arms market. All right, maybe Philly's a team. So you have some teams. But to me, it's the Dodgers and the Yankees. The difference between, okay, you are absolutely the prohibited AL favorites, and, and I'll include the Orioles in there, to, okay, you're a solid uh, playoff contender. There, That's massive. If Blake Snell goes to the Dodgers, I know people are going to scream, well, they overpaid, and oh my goodness, they're buying a championship, and oh, it's crazy. I get it, get it, okay? I'm looking at the negative. But Chris, if Blake Snell goes to the Dodgers, doesn't that make sense from a baseball standpoint of what they need, what this team is lacking? Doesn't that make a ton of sense? Absolutely, it does. No question about it. And you're adding a top-end talent on that, you know, in that rotation that uh, can can be looked at as, as in a sense, putting your team over the top, right, in the National League. Now, look, the Dodgers are already a team that's going to be right there, obviously. But, uh, you know, I, again, but I just keep getting back to this Angels thing, right, Tommy, with Blake Snell. I mean, you like that young rotation, right, with Detmers, Sandoval, and Canning, and still set back with, uh, with, with the Angels. We add Blake Snell to that mix. Maybe that does move the needle a little bit if you're the Angels particularly from a pitching standpoint, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I think Blake Snell in Los Angeles in Dodger stadium, I think would be outstanding. 
Um, it also intrigues me too. I, I got to say when it comes to, you know, someone like a Jordan Montgomery, you know, uh, with, with, the, with the Rangers, right. When you got DeGrom, when you got Scherzer, when you got Molly there, all, you know, again, fingers crossed, right. For all those guys to be healthy in the rotation in 2024, uh, you know, the Rangers saw last year with the, you know, what the you know, most well-intentioned starting pitching plans can explode in an instant, uh, you know, and Montgomery was huge for them. So, I mean, I, look, I, I understand that there's issues there, but uh, the Rangers wouldn't have been the champions. They wouldn't have even been a playoff team without, without Montgomery and his steady hand there. So, uh, I, I mean, that's, that's, not, I, I, I know I'm kind of, you know, reaching here, but I still would love to see him maybe in a Texas Rangers uniform still. But, uh, and with respect to JD Martinez, look, JD Martinez, uh, what's intriguing to me about him as far as a possible landing spot is uh, is one of his old spots, of course. That's the Arizona Diamondbacks, right? Uh, when, with, when you talk about him, you know, the Dodgers will probably be a favorite uh, in the division. But the D-backs aren't just going to sit there back after, you know, making the World Series a year ago. And you love, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez. You love trading for Suarez there and, uh, you know, extending Guriel also. But uh, you would love to see Arizona getting more help as far as their DH is concerned. And obviously, J.D. Martinez would check the box in that type of situation. He's 36 years old, still has, he still has uh, some pop in that bat. And uh, by the way, he had a higher slugging percentage than anybody on that team on the Diamondbacks roster a year ago. So uh, I think that's something that would be a good fit as well, too. All right. We, we've talked about good fits. Where does Martinez wind up? Yeah, so I think I mean I think to me it's it's going to be either uh, San Francisco or or Arizona in my in my opinion. I think that that's and outside chance he could end up in the American League East somewhere as well too. Yeah, I, I think he he San Francisco has to do something. Uh, where does Matt Chapman wind up? So Chapman again, interesting because. I, I still, I'm looking at this, Tommy, and I, I, I see him in a Giants uniform. You know, the Giants, plus they have plenty of, you know, familiarity. You know, uh, Zadie drafted Chapman in the first round back in 2014. Bob Melvin coached him for five years. You know, the Giants bring him closer to home. If they don't get Blake Snell, I don't think they'll be, you know, they'll just be content with just Lee, right? And Jordan Hicks, considering, you know, when it comes to their offseason, let's call them shortcomings. So, I, I mean, I think, I think the Giants are in the mix there, Tommy, when it comes to all things Matt Chapman. And, uh, and again, I mean, look, they've also tossed out my Detroit Tigers as well, too. Again, maybe I'm just being, uh, you know, Debbie Downer when it comes to my Detroit Tigers, but I don't really know why a player that's looking to, to you know, add to a playoff type of scenario or a player that's having expectations of playing the postseason is going to be looking at Detroit because I think they're a team that's destined to win 70 games in the season. But, uh, you know, I, I guess some things could fall where Detroit could end up being in the mix. But And there's no question that Chapman would fit great in that lineup as well, too, for that for that team as well, too. So, I mean, I, I guess on an outside chance, I could see him maybe with the old English D on his chest. But I, I really think San Francisco is an opportunity here for them. Yeah, I'm thinking Seattle could be a fit, too. What about Jordan Montgomery? Where does he wind up? Yeah, Jordan Montgomery, I mean, look, uh, you can make a strong argument that uh, 
that he ends up with a team like the Cubs or uh, or even the Yankees. Uh, but I think it's going it, to – I. For some reason, I, I just I feel like Boston's going to end up uh, making a deal here. I think it's going to he's going to end up in Boston, and uh, which is essentially going to Siberia right now in Major League Baseball. So I don't know how great that will be for him from a you know from a competitive standpoint, but uh, you know from a financial standpoint, it'd be great for him, or it'll be good enough for him. But uh, yeah, for some reason, I I, I feel like he's going to end up in Fenway Park. I have a weird feeling Baltimore is going to do the right thing. They mm-hmm. haven't in a long time. Maybe it's just because, uh, you know, I got Tim screaming in my ear for how many years. I have a weird feeling that they're looking at Kyle Bradish. They know what that means. I have a weird feeling that, that, that he winds up. We're all saying the American League East, that he winds up uh, with Baltimore. Finally, Blake Snell. Um, I- I'll get in front of this one. I want you to, to jump on it. Look, you're saying the Angels makes so much sense. Snell makes sense. San Francisco makes sense. Seattle makes sense. But all I've heard for three months is that Blake Snell to the Yankees is the only offer. Blake Snell is the only offer on the table. The only offer they're getting. And I tend to believe it. Usually, you hear out of agents that they have a million offers. So for something like this to leak... It just makes sense. He's best friends with Aaron Judge. He wants to win a championship. He's a guy that can be babied in New York with the five innings that he needs. Um, and, and I think that I think that Cashman's looking for a land, a smooth landing spot where, man, if we somehow or another lose Soto, we can't say that we, we didn't do something this offseason. The only thing that's keeping them away is the years, which I think Blake Snell will come back to it. And I think that he goes to the Yankees because I don't want to sign him to a six-year contract. And Cashman generally does exactly what I don't want. So I got him going to the Yankees. Where do you have him? Yeah, I think that New York is definitely the, the most ideal landing spot for him. Look, I, I mean, I, I kind of was waffling on the whole Montgomery, you know, reunion back with the Yankees, obviously, since he was traded, you know, back in the 2022 trade deadline for that Bader trade that went down. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, Montgomery goes on because a playoff star for the Rangers a year later. And uh, given the fact that the Yankees, what, you know, you know, are, are looked at kind of as striking out in the Yamamoto sweepstakes in a way, I think they kind of write that wrong when it comes to uh, Blake Snell. And I think he is a solid fit there in Yankee Stadium. So I think I think absolutely that, uh, you know, regardless of what the circumstances are, when it comes to you know him at having the one offer from the Yankees and not really any strong offer from anybody else, I still think New York is the team that's going to end up landing him. Yeah, I do too. I just hope uh, three-year deals sound good. You know, yeah. five-year deals, six-year deals start to worry me, especially for a starting pitcher, especially for a starting pitcher that doesn't go deep into games. It starts to worry me, Chris. Um, I, I, I don't know. That's kind of just how I feel. All right, Chris. Tell us where can everybody hear you? It's been great, Tommy. Joining you on a Sunday night here on Heatwave Sports. Uh, you can find me all with the dial pretty much. Uh, always love jumping on Heatwave here on Fox Sports Radio here in Las Vegas, along with Out of Line over with uh, with uh, Brian Feldman in the mornings at, from 8 to 9 a.m. And you can find me also uh, down the dial here in Las Vegas talking sports and all over social media on X. You can find me at Christian Wynn talking all things from UNLV to the Raiders to do VGK and beyond, Tommy. Of course, uh, we are about ready to ramp it up, right? When it comes to college basketball, 
March Madness, the NBA, NHL playoffs on the way. And it's going to be exciting without question. And, of course, you talked about it. Spring training, baby. Uh, everybody is zero and zero. Everybody has a chance right now, Tommy. Everybody's got a shot to uh, do something. And uh, you can also find me over on Instagram and uh, on Facebook at CWIN77, where uh, I uh, wax poetic on all things uh, across the board. Not just sports, Tommy, right? We chime in all things. Politics, news, entertainment, Taylor Swift, uh, you know, Travis Kelsey, and beyond, sir. So always a good time. And uh, have a great weekend, everybody, and, uh, and uh, a great week as we uh, roll down the end of February here. Chris, it's been absolutely fantastic. Guys, go check me out, TomBortonSports.com. TomBortonSports.com will be back next week. Tim will join us. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you, Las Vegas. Have a very good night, everybody.